Hi, Yolanda here. Before we listen to one of my favourite episodes of LPO Offstage, I wanted to let you know that we are now featuring listeners' questions on the podcast. You can ask the musicians or anyone here on LPO Offstage anything at all. Whether you'd like advice on how to approach classical music, where to eat on tour, or how to structure your own practice, please email offstage at lpo.org.uk and you may be featured in a future edition. But now, welcome to an episode of LPO Offstage, which we recorded back in 2021. Karina, Elizabeth and I talk about making the most of fear, strengthening exercises that help musicians both physically and mentally, the importance of pre-concert rituals and finding your lake stillness. So take a deep breath and enjoy. Hello, I'm Yolanda Brown and welcome to LPO Offstage. Today we're finding out how musicians keep in shape both physically and mentally. We're joined by principal guest conductor Karina Kanalakis and cellist Elizabeth Viklander. Great to have you with me, Karina and Elizabeth. Thank you very much. Thank you. Karina, I'm going to start with you if that's okay. I mean, Making music in general for musicians and conductors, it is a full-bodied physical experience. How do you keep in tip-top condition? This is a very not often discussed (laughs) issue, actually, so I'm really happy we're talking about it. I have to say I've noticed with the young generation that it is becoming more of a topic in the conservatories. And I'm also a violinist, and when I was studying, it was not so often that people would open up about having arm problems or tendonitis or things. And now I feel like people are more comfortable about expressing if they have aches and pains or if something is is not right. And I think that's really important and really good. Definitely what we all do involves a lot of repetitive motion yes. and, and repetitive stress injuries are extremely common in the orchestra world. And I think a lot of people feel somehow a sense of embarrassment about when something goes wrong. And I and I don't think we should. I think we should really open it up and, and have it be also part of, of young musicians training, you know, how to take care of your body. I've had to sort of learn it all myself over the years through trial and error. And I'm, it's definitely a work in progress. I'm by no means an expert in how to prevent various things. And I often have a headache the morning after a performance. That's interesting. <laughs> and this, yeah, and it's been it's been an issue that I've had for many many years. And at first, I thought it was from the after concert drinks, <laughs> um, but <laughs> but I cut those out a while ago. And um, you know, there's so much adrenaline and there's so much excitement and there's so much emotion on mm. stage. And I think conductors, especially, we the neck and the shoulders bear the brunt of the stress and the. It's almost like the sound is coming at you and you and you sort of take it in your facial expressions and, you know, the jaw and the neck muscles are all connected. So so I've definitely been actively trying to relax my neck and shoulders Mm. at night after a performance sort of before I go to bed. And that does seem to help. But, yeah, I'm I'm still still working on it. Elizabeth, I can see you nodding there. You you fully understand (laughs) this sentiment. Being a cellist, I mean, physically, what are the demands on your body? Cello is a rather large instrument and it it does require a certain amount of physical power to handle and master that instrument. And I think for cellists also what is common for us is to have backaches and um, 
neck, shoulder pain, also arms sometimes, uh, tendons maybe here around the hand and fingers, because some of our strings are really big and take a lot of effort to handle and depends sometimes what we've been playing. Some repertoire is, uh, can be demanding for stamina when it comes to the bow arm or have a lot of heavy thing going for the left hand. Mm. So I think for me to make sure that I become as less susceptible as possible to injuries is to always make sure that you you strengthen your body a little bit more than you actually need for the actual work. And you already need a quite a strong body for the work. So, and the work also takes up a lot of time. So it can be hard to fit in <laughs> that sort of training and exercise that you need to build a little bit of an extra buffer to make sure yeah. that you, you, you keep injuries away and also stay really in tune with when something does start to ache and hurt to not neglect that but to react immediately. As Karina says, it's, it's really great that we are much more open about this and also about the mental aspects uh, of performing as well and mental health and all that, which is also much more spoken about today, which is great because it is also takes a big mental toll. And the mental pressure is also something that takes physical energy to handle yes. and which also tires you. So again, I think physical exercise which also aids mental stamina is also important I think everything is interconnected there Absolutely. I can tell I'm going to leave this podcast recording with a, a whole list of tips and tricks as we go on. Elizabeth, can I ask you a bit more about what do you do firstly physically to strengthen yourself for playing your instrument? Because of the uh, irregularity of the schedule, it's very hard to pursue, or at least for me, to pursue a sport which has a certain regularity. I used to do a lot of sports that I enjoyed doing like archery and uh, rock climbing, wow. martial arts, and all of them have actually really contributed a lot to how I approach practice and the physical aspects of what I do and the mental aspects as well, because all of these things also had a lot of focus, problem solving, um, mental stamina. But unfortunately, it's been hard to keep them up at a, a particular level. So in order to make sure that I always stay on top of things is to to go for a run, because that's easily accessible. You just put your sneaks on. And <laughs> if you've got, you know, an hour, you can go out for half an hour, 40 minutes and have a quick shower and, you know, you've done something. And uh, a little bit of uh, strengthening exercises like push-ups, sit-ups, a bit of gymnastics, mm -hmm. stretching. I've never really been into yoga, but everyone says that yoga is so good. I probably should try that sometime. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, I, I'm a bit more of an explosive person. I, I like to go and, and really have a good a good run and a, a good couple of push-ups and uh, a cold shower after that, and that'll sort me out. <laughs> <laughs> sounds good, sounds good. <laughs> Karina, what sort of uh, exercise routines do you engage in, or do you even, to sort of keep yourself in good condition? Well, it's so nice to talk about this. And what Elizabeth said about the irregularity of the schedule is definitely mm. the main issue. I think for most musicians, because we have performances on some nights of the week, but not other nights. And sometimes it's an early morning and sometimes it's a morning where actually you really need to allow yourself to sleep in. And then it depends on if you have kids and how old your kids are and, all, you know, all those things is <laughs> it all sort of adds to. I mean, we all have busy lives and then there's transportation to and from the rehearsals and everything. When you sort of put that all together, I think for me, just committing to making the time and actually just viewing it as a priority has been a huge step forward for me because I used to only prioritize studying my scores. 
that that was sort of like the thing. And it didn't matter whether it was on an airplane or in a car ride or sitting somewhere in a cafe where there's music playing from the cafe speakers. And still I would like try to use those 15 minutes, you know, to look at my symphony for the next day. And, you know, after a while, it's, it's actually important to let the brain rest sometimes. And one of the best ways to refresh your brain is to get outside and get fresh air and get your circulation going. So I started to prioritize even going for a walk. I also love going for a run sometimes. I have um, actually learned a really amazing uh, thing, which is called ELDOA, which is an acronym. It's E-L-D-O-A. Okay. And it was invented by a French osteopath named Guy Voyer. And it's not very popular yet, but I think it should be because it's it involves sort of spinal exercises and strengthening the muscles in around your scapula and your your spine to prevent back injuries and it's especially great for string players and for conductors very good and it it's uh, yeah it really strengthens everything i started doing that and it involves you know putting your arms above your head and sort of holding these static poses for about 60 seconds and especially after a performance it's really really amazing the result that it had for me it, it sort of saved my life and I've been doing that for seven years now <laughs> so wow and Elizabeth you touched on the element of mental conditioning as well what are some of the mental challenges for a professional musician there is a whole range of them, I'm sure. And we are all very different in how we approach our line of work. But I think I think it is safe to say that most of us will have to live under this constant pressure of performing whilst being in the midst of a fight or flight response triggered by the situation. And that is something that takes a great mental toll to always have to divert all those basic instincts of wanting to run away from a potentially threatening situation and just do it anyway. It is not about making these feelings go away as you as you work. You obviously become used to the situation of being exposed to this, but uh, I think it is more about finding ways to cope mm. with these feelings and actually turn them to your advantage and learn to harness the fantastic power that you can find in these chemicals and these emotions. When we say about distractions for musicians, sometimes it it might not even be what other people are saying. Sometimes it's that small voice in your own head saying, can I do this? Am I good enough? Are those some of the distractions you think that professional musicians have? At least I do. (laughs) (laughs) I have them a lot, all the time. Uh, I mean, in everything I do, uh, I always question myself whether this is good enough or I think... That can be both a blessing and a curse, I suppose, because that is also the driving force that brings you to evolve yourself and improve. I particularly, what came as a real blessing was when I was academist in the Royal Cossackaba Orchestra in Amsterdam, where I got a lot of my my orchestral training and my, my skills as an orchestra player, the former principal horn soloist there, tipped me about a certain technique that was just like the last puzzle piece that was missing for me, a centering technique that helped helped me overcome my fear of being fearful. <laughs> that the, the only thing I feared was fear itself, basically. Yes. And once I conquered that, I didn't have to fear feeling nervous or having these thoughts because I knew that they don't have to impact my performance anymore. So it didn't remove these feelings. They're still always there. I can still be so nervous 
and doubtful that I can feel almost fi- that I can feel physically sick by it sometimes for a long time but I'm no longer afraid of feeling that way I don't fear getting nervous because I'm thinking the nervousness is going to ruin my performance I'm just thinking oh I'm nervous it's not a threat anymore I still know I can still perform no matter how how crap I feel do you have any tips for musicians that maybe go are going through that at the moment uh, of directions that they can go in to, to help them dampen that voice a little bit? This is also something that you can train. I, for example, with this technique that was given to me by this uh, colleague in the Kosakuba Orchestra, it actually involved learning to visualize certain things the way that athletes also do when you visualize success. And that is something that in the beginning was actually quite hard to do <laughs> because <laughs> you, you, you tended to always see yourself fail because that was what was on, on your cards at, at that moment. But the more you, you trained to actually visualize success for yourself the better you became at it. So don't give up, but just continue to practice also the mental aspects of handling stress. If you keep searching, you will find what you're looking for. Absolutely, absolutely. Karina, how do you get into the right mindset for a performance? You spoke earlier about getting your scores, working through, there's a lot of preparation that has to happen before. But on the actual night, what sort of process do you go through to really get into performance mode? Well, I love what Elizabeth just said about the positive visualization. I mean, for me, I have come to a point where before performance, I try to clear my head as much as possible. I've had a lot of conversations with Alan Gilbert, great conductor, about this and a dear friend of mine and Alan (laughs) told me that the very first time he ever conducted the Berlin Philharmonic was as a last minute replacement for someone. So we got the call, you know, three days before and that rather than going and studying, he just went, went and lay down in bed and slept as much as he could for like two days. <laughs> what will be, will and be. that story has yeah, really, I just love that. And it stuck with me for years because that's really the key is, is to trust yourself. You have to trust yourself that all of these years that you've been a musician and all the hours of practicing and studying and all the concerts you've listened to and, you know, everything that you've done for so many years is going to come to your service when you need it. You have to trust that and take care of yourself, take care of your body, make sure that you sleep, make sure you have a good meal, a nice nap, a sort of meditate a little bit, go for a walk, allow the brain to completely go quiet. So you have a sense of clarity as though you're in a small boat on a, on a very still lake with no people. Nice. <laughs> that sort of state. And that's the state that I go into for about three hours before I go on stage. I really, really need to be in that state. I really try not to talk not to have dinner with people, not to, if possible, not to go on public transportation. (laughs) Um, You know, just make my life as simple and meditative as possible for about three hours before the performance. Mm. And I, of course, start hearing the piece in my head, almost like a recording is playing, and and that makes me excited. And then I start to sort of imagine the way it's going to go. And I even imagine people's faces in the orchestra from from the rehearsal that morning you know I can I can picture the moments when I look at certain people and I look forward to that contact with them and and I look forward to how they're going to play in the concert because 
you know, great orchestras like the LPO, they always, there's always this extra thing that everybody gives in the performance. And that's so exciting as a conductor. Cause you're just, you're like, yes, I'm waiting for it. Come on, give it to me. You know? And then, and when it comes, it's yes, it's just so exciting. <laughs> So euphoric. I can I can imagine. And actually, I have heard the musicians say, uh, you know, they do give their all in rehearsal, but there is just something extra that comes at the at the live performance that you just you can't get it in rehearsal. It just doesn't exist. You totally. Know? Um, exactly. <laughs> now you've both spoken so well. I, I'm I'm sold. You know, it, it it's about relaxation, getting in touch with your body, um, finding space and time just to calm down. But in the real world, when you add travel. You might have just been on a plane in the airport. You haven't had anything to eat. The famous LPO banana that you need to have before the concert. You know, you haven't been able to have all of that. And then, you know, the the kids, maybe the kids aren't well and you're in a different country or something has happened. You have had a phone call within that three hour slot that you really needed. How do you batten down the hatches? when all of that is happening. I mean, it's never a controlled environment that we're working in as musicians. There's always something happening. How do you try to cut through all of that? And does it ever affect your performance, Karina? I think having had at least a few moments in your life where you do have the boat in the lake stillness is enough to carry you through. Um, Because... At least for me, I, I do feel that I can use the power of my mind to recall that feeling, even if I am on the subway <laughs> in rush hour, or even if my baby is crying or something is wrong or whatever it is, you get a phone call from someone that you weren't expecting that you have to, t- you know, there are a million things life, right? And the modern world, but you do eventually get to the concert hall, <laughs> And hopefully you get there with at least a half hour, (laughs) at least, (laughs) before the show starts. And you change into your concert outfit. That's the first thing. So that's kind of like putting on your costume in a way. It's a a ritual. Maybe fix your hair. Maybe you put on like a little lipstick or something. Even just that is something that's a ritual. That's you preparing yourself for the stage. And it's not about putting on lipstick because at least for me because I want to look a certain way it's because it just makes me feel better and it's something I'm doing for myself that's calming in that moment I will open my score usually on the piano in the dressing room standing I don't know why but I always do that I just open it on the piano standing up relax my shoulders look at the score allow myself to find that lake stillness Mm. even if it's for five minutes I love Karina's metaphor with that boat in the lake stillness because that is something that is very close to my own experiences back home from Sweden where I grew up next to a lake when used to be in my canoe right out there not being able to resist if I opened the window and saw that the lake was still I had to I just had to be part of it and it is so helpful to have images and experiences like that that you can draw upon that you can encapsulate and just bring into a moment where you really need them and help you to get into the frame of mind that you need for what you're about to do. And how do you go about preparing for difficult passages or solos that might be coming up for a performance? What forms of distractions do you feel with those? Yes, well, practice, 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 (laughs) (laughs) I suppose. Well, yeah, you, you have to put the hours in, obviously, to be on top of the task at hand. You have to be a researcher in your practice room, elaborate 
with it all, you know, get to know it from all angles. I think all those preparations need to be put in place. And for me, who's a rank and file player in the orchestra and don't always get very exposed to having to play difficult passages or solos in a way that is heard by others um, in the same way, uh, for me, it could be good to have tryouts to just get more into the mindset of being exposed in that way. For someone who does it all the time, uh, I think you, you sort of get used to that position and that sort of exposure which I can feel also in the period where I've had more recitals than usual, that it is always much more uncomfortable the first ones and then you sort of get used to it. So I think it's important to also prepare yourself for the situation mentally by exposing yourself to a similar situation. Mm. And what about you, Karina? How do you really feel confident and comfortable when those passages are approaching? This is the difficulty of being a conductor is that you you can't practice <laughs> really until you're in front of the group and it's go time. <laughs> so experience with certain repertoire will inform your preparation of other different yet similar genres of the repertoire. So yes. if you're doing Mahler 3 for the first time, but you've done Mahler 1, 5, and 6, that's very helpful. <laughs> and you apply that to your first rehearsal of the new Mahler symphony. You do have to be kind to yourself, though, and just accept that the very first rehearsal of a piece that you've never conducted before is going to be uncomfortable. <laughs> it just is. And it's part of being a conductor. And some conductors are more adventurous than others in terms of allowing themselves to be in that uncomfortable mm -hmm. state. Some conductors like to repeat the same repertoire over and over again. They say, these are the 10 symphonies I'm doing this season. Pick one. And that's it. And others like myself included, I am quite adventurous and quite risky. I, I love so many different corners of the repertoire. I love it all. <laughs> and so for me, it's more I have to be careful not to schedule too much different repertoire because you do want to conduct pieces that you feel extremely convinced about, that you have processed. You have to have time to process the music especially when you're working with really the great orchestras like the LPO. It's mm. it's a very fast rehearsal process. Everyone is impeccably well-prepared. The orchestra is accustomed to an extremely quick rehearsal period where everybody gets their ducks lined up in their own way. You know, everybody has his or her own department that they take care of. And then we all come together and sort of let it fly in the end. Yeah. And so you also have to know that. You have to know the orchestra you're working with and you have to be able to anticipate what needs the work and what you can leave alone and trust will happen. Will be one of those things that happens in the moment. And and for that, in order to do that, you have you do have to know the orchestra. That does make sense. Do you ever get distracted during a performance? After all this sort of visualization, you're in there, you've know your score, you've got your, your suit on, you're good to go. And then, I don't know, someone's phone goes off or the lighting's flickering or there's a fly. There's always a fly. There's a fly that, you know, just keeps wanting to land on your baton. Have you ever had those experiences where you get distracted and did you manage to pull yourself out of it? <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Never. I mean, I, I think I rarely, if ever, have been distracted by a phone or a or something like that. Um, you know, someone having a dog in the front row or something, oh, which has happened. Um, th those things, actually, I find them funny. I find them to be usually they're icebreakers because you're not the only one who hears it. Yes. You know, that's the th everyone. It's a collective 
distraction. What has distracted me is that I am, I think for conductor standards, overly sensitive person. I think I'm an unusually sensitive for, for a conductor. <laughs> I'm particularly sensitive to the mood and the facial expressions of the musicians in the orchestra. Yes. Very much. And that was very difficult for me at first as a conductor, because if someone looked like they were grumpy, I used to think it was because of me. <laughs> and then over time, I gradually realized, you know, the world doesn't grumpy. revolve around <laughs> you, honey. <laughs> this person has their own problems and, you know, it's really okay. But I will sometimes, if, especially when it's an orchestra that I know and if I've heard something from the orchestra manager about somebody, like someone's yes. child was sick, or I know that somebody had something, and then I see that person in the performance, I'm always sort of a little bit distracted because my my level of sort of concern and empathy for that person definitely distracts me in that moment. And mm. then I start thinking to myself, I wonder if they're okay, and I wonder what happened, and how must they feel? And then I have to tell myself, stop. <laughs> Tchaikovsky, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it's just being a human, I guess. Absolutely. It's, because also as the conductor, the, the main difference is I'm looking at everybody and everyone is facing me. Everyone. People are all looking at me. So I see everyone's face right in, in front of me and and I meet eyes mm. with, I would say, a good 80 percent of the people on stage you have this, on the one hand, incredible intimacy with the musicians, looking at each other and emoting. And, you know, I'm, I'm giving my whole soul to what I'm doing in that moment in the music. But then at the same time, that same person with whom you shared such an intimate moment, you don't know much more about that person than their name, really. You say hello in the hallway, but you actually, on a personal level, really don't know each other. And it's it's a bizarre thing. That's the beauty of what we do, I guess. If I may just uh, comment Please on uh, Karina's question, because I just thought it was so funny because I'm completely the opposite, the mirrored opposite of her, that how people look doesn't affect me almost one bit. But I'm super sensitive to if there's any sensory distractions in the room. And I think just the fact that knowing that they can occur uh, already helps you to prepare mentally for the moment where they do occur. Most of the time, natural distractions like a fly will not bother me so much. But human behavior can very much distract me if if someone is making a noise or, yes, or if a lamp is, is flickering. A lot of this boils down to the fact that I'm an autistic individual, that I'm super, super sensitive to any sensory input around me. So how do you cope with that? What sort of coping mechanisms? Because if you're in the middle uh, of a concert and a bulb is going uh, off, what do you do? Oh dear, I'm still I'm still working on it. <laughs> I'm still working on finding uh, something better than what I've got. I mean, some days you will be better at being able to block out. It also depends on how much resources you've got available inside of you at that moment. If I'm well rested and not stressed before, I am much more well equipped to do the uh, mental effort that I need to block these things out. Yes. Because my world is so completely unfiltered. And even though I'm trying not to listen to it. Even in this quiet room, I'm hearing electricity buzz in the walls. Uh, I'm hearing even from outside the, the rattles of leaves from the big oak outside. I'm hearing distant conversations down on the bottom floor. It's, and unfortunately, those things are not something when I'm focused on something that sort of just filters out. My, my brain consciously 
detects everything and consciously process yes. it. And that could be very difficult as a musician, especially if you're um, put in an environment like uh, like we spoke of before in the preparation where I don't have the quiet space. That is very difficult for me and can be quite disabling, actually, in many ways. So nowadays I, I tend to, if I have recitals, I actually, I advertise that I'm autistic ah. and I'm asking people to please, you know, not do certain things if they can avoid it and uh, because of these things, because... Why shouldn't I ask for it when I'm so sensitive to these things and it could really impact my performance? And it's nothing that I, not much I can do about it because I'm wired that way biologically. (laughs) Um, And so so, what happens uh, when you're on tour, Elizabeth, and, you know, there's jet lag that comes into play or, you know, you've been travelling? What what happens then? Are certain things having to be adjusted? Travel is one of the absolute most difficult things for me because there are so many different sounds, smells, impressions everywhere, tastes. And when you go to different places with different food, just everything is absolutely um, overwhelming when you're traveling. I mean, I know a lot of autistic people who never travel for pleasure. It's just too taxing. Even people in my family who are autistic who will not go on a trip abroad just to relax. (laughs) I'm I'm still working on finding um, even better coping mechanisms to deal with this. Uh, I'm taking more timeouts for myself to decompress uh, and and process all of these impressions. Mm. That really helps. It is like lifting the lid off of a boiling kettle because if you wait too long and it boils over, then you have a situation which is out of control and you don't want that. And then you can have days actually that you need for recuperation because it is such an outlet of stress and energies in your body that uh, that builds up from, from this environment. So we've spoken a lot about before the concert or before we go on tour, the ways that we get in touch with our body, how we relax and focus. We've spoken about being in the concert environment and how we maintain focus, try to fight distractions. But music is emotive. And when we finish a concert, there is a certain element of winding down that has to happen. What sort of things help you wind down, Elizabeth? I'm so sorry to say that one of the many conventional ways of going out for a post-concert drink, uh, I I wish I really did appreciate it the same way as others because I do feel like I'm missing out. But yet again, I'm sorry to come back to the same thing and having to repeat myself, but the pub environment or the restaurant environment is really difficult for me. Sometimes it can be okay because you're on a high of adrenaline after a concert and uh, I'm, I'm still happy to go along. But since I have become more aware of who I am and how my body works and my needs, I do tend to decline these sort of events more than before. It is not because I don't want to hang out with my friends. It is not a reflection on how much I care about them. It is simply something that I need to protect my well-being. So what do you Um, do instead? Well, I go home. (laughs) I go home and uh, I put on uh, loungewear to make sure that, you know, all the sensory input that I get is is, as smooth and lovely as possible because also being in my concert outfit can be quite triggering for me sometimes. It's not comfortable. Sometimes the fabrics or the shoes or things. uh, I have not yet found the ultimate concert clothing that keeps me very uh, comfortable while matching the level of, uh, of elegance. Yeah, how I want yes. to look <laughs> present myself on stage. I can't really come in my loungewear. <laughs> I go home, I take my makeup off, I put myself in something that feels really soft against my skin uh, and I reflect on what has happened. I maybe um, I might speak to uh, a friend or a family member and talk about, uh, or my husband indeed, the, the transport and deputy stage manager yes. of, of this orchestra. Hello Damien, uh, we've had a great time <laughs> speaking to him, yes. 
<laughs> oh yeah, he did uh, the keep tracking he with did, you, didn't indeed, he, an episode. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so thankfully I have someone at home that I can also share my experience with from the concert because of course it is nice to talk about what you've just experienced and, and share. Uh, but unfortunately, most of the places where this happens will be an environment which is not always suitable for me at that moment. It sounds so, perfect uh, to me, Elizabeth. I think I'm going to adopt <laughs> that one. Lounge wear and relax. That's what I'm going to do. And, and Karina, what about for you? I mean, you spoke about sort of almost robing up, ready for the performance. What happens for you after to come down, hopefully not with too much of a headache? Well, next time we're on tour, I'm going to Elizabeth's house. Yeah, me after too. The I mean, I'm not going to be on tour, but I'm coming I'll to crack the wine open for you guys. Because <laughs> I do enjoy perfect. a nice glass of wine afterwards. Then that sounds even better. <laughs> we don't have to talk. We can just put on our, our, our loungewear and just sit on the couch oh, and yes. be really cozy. That sounds perfect. I will admit, I mean, I consider myself to be a pretty sociable person. However... Actually, I've been, I don't know whether this is good or bad to admit this, but here we go. I have a son who's almost nine months old, and I have really enjoyed being able to use the baby excuse. Oh, yes. <laughs> to yes. not have to do anything after the show. It's not that I don't want to have a drink with friends after the show. It's not that. It's just that I am often really, honestly, very, very exhausted. And... It depends on what the repertoire is. But if I've just conducted something like Shostakovich 8, for example, you know, a, a wartime symphony where I'm in that world and I'm in that mentality, I find it extremely difficult to just snap out of it and then greet people and smile and say thank you and and do that whole thing. And I've, mm -hmm. I've never actually admitted that before. But Elizabeth, you made me feel comfortable <laughs> to to say that. And it's each one of us is very different. And but I do feel that as I've gotten a little bit older, my craving for going out and having a drink has sort of died mm. and <laughs> been replaced by a craving for for more rest, restful moments. And to also rest, even, you know, even when you greet people after a concert and smile, you're using your facial muscles to smile. And I don't know if you've ever had the, oh, the yeah. like, my face hurts oh, from yes. smiling. Oh, yes. <laughs> We're pointing our cheeks right now. Yeah. I even have it's, it now almost. I know. Right? It's a killer. And I, I started to notice it. I do think it's a little bit of a peer pressure thing that you feel bad if someone invites you for a drink and you say, no, you know, I'm going to go home you know oh how boring yes. <laughs> but actually maybe maybe we all would really prefer to go and get in our sweatpants and curl up on the couch with our wine or beer or tea or whatever <laughs> you know so I think um I don't know the more what is the moral of this podcast I guess it's in a way is to be more open about the things and just say how you feel honestly and say what you need and not be ashamed of that and not feel that you're being weird or that you're letting somebody down by saying what you need. No, and you've both shared so passionately and so openly. I'm really, really grateful to you. I know so many people will be listening and nodding and saying yes or jotting down <laughs> ideas. So it's been really, really great to speak to you both. And a lot of the topics that have come up here, I know every musician goes through. So I know you've helped many. Thank you both, Elizabeth and Karina. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. 
Well, that's it for now from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. Thanks so much to Karina Kanalakis and Elizabeth Viklander for sharing their tips and tricks for preparing to perform and keeping in shape as a musician. Please get in touch using the hashtag OffstagePod. And thank you so much for listening. And do join me for the next episode of LPO Offstage. See you soon. <laughs>